Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A new economic era is dawning in China, a potent mix of autocracy, technology, and dynamism. The West may not like it, but it shouldn't underestimate it. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on the markets, the economy, and the world of business. I'm Simon Long, an editor at The Economist, and in today's episode, President Xi Jinping's new economic agenda. Let's call it Shinomics. We'll examine this latest evolution of state capitalism. China wants to continue to open up and make itself as attractive as possible to foreign investors, but at the same time is worried about supply chain risk, about disruptions, about restrictions of exports to China. Could a new sort of central planning help Chinese technology dominate the world stage? Today, it's not just the state sector that is rallying to this cause. More private firms are also now very much interested in building up China's technology sector more broadly. And if these contradictions can be resolved, is it time America and its allies recalibrated their thinking on their most important strategic rivalry? The knee-jerk reaction is to liken China to the Soviet Union, and we all know how that ended. And that leads to a real underestimate of where China is going. For much of the world, a post-pandemic recovery feels like a distant dream. Unless, of course, you're in China. Not only is its economy growing, it's nearly returned to its pre-COVID pace. Data published on Monday, October the 19th, showed that GDP in the third quarter grew by 4.9% year-on-year. Of course, this remarkable growth rests on the country's apparent success in almost entirely stamping out the virus. But a closer look also reveals a quieter transformation that's been happening at the heart of the Chinese economy. Our Asia economics editor, Simon Rubinovich, is in Shanghai. Hello, Simon. Hi, Simon. Hi, well, I'm talking to you from London, where we've just been moved into what's called Tier 2, a higher-risk category of pandemic restrictions. I'm in the economist office where perhaps 300 people normally work, and there's just a handful of people here. Uh, we're no longer allowed to mingle indoors. The streets are decidedly quiet. You know, don't sugar the pill. Tell us what it's like where you are. <laughs> I mean, for for lack of a better word, it, it basically feels normal. Schools are fully open. Uh, restaurants and bars are crowded. Um, I was at a movie last week, and it was, it was sold out shoulder to shoulder. You still have thermal cameras at the entrance to every buildings, you know, masks are required for going on the subways. But apart from that, you'd almost forget that there was a global pandemic uh, raging outside of China. Okay, enough, enough. Um, so these data, are they more or less 
what you and other analysts expected? And, and are they reliable? There's always question marks over how much to believe Chinese GDP statistics. So in, in a short-term sense, the data were basically in line with expectations in that you've got lots of data that lead into the quarterly data, monthly data, even some weekly data. And so people basically homed in on, on roughly 5% year-on-year growth as the expectation. Uh, is it believable? I mean, you're obviously right that there's been lots of skepticism, rightly so, about Chinese data over the years. There's a variety of of kind of channel checks of different indicators that people look at. The general view of non-official economists is that there has indeed been a very strong rebound and the real growth number is basically in line with with what they've declared there. And the virus really has been controlled domestically. And underlying these, these headline numbers, I mean, how do you rate the general current strength and resilience of the Chinese economy? You know, it's clear that there's been a big change in China since 2012 when, when Xi Jinping rose to power. The Communist Party and indeed the, the broader governance of China are increasingly centered around him and around his agenda. So what exactly is his agenda? You know, politically, if you look at it, China clearly has become a more forceful actor. Domestically, Xi has been exercising far greater control over, you know, virtually every aspect of of life in society in China. Uh, Regions with ethnic minorities are are being ruled with an increasingly iron fist, most notably in Xinjiang, where, you know, hundreds of thousands of people at least have been placed in gulag-style camps. That's the cover of of our issue that's currently on the newsstands right now. For Western observers, you know, you look at it, and if the economy was purely a morality play, you might think, well, they'll be getting their comeuppance. This is not a good recipe for growth. But it's complicated. It's a lot more complicated than that. You know, Xi Jinping and the party, they know that China's project of national rejuvenation relies on China having a very strong economy and that excessively strong party rule alone is not going to deliver. You need to have a functioning private sector. You need to have innovation. You need to have economic growth. So you have an agenda on the economic side that's trying to fuse all all these things together. So in historical terms, Samuel, are we seeing China under Xi Jinping trying to strike sort of a, a happy medium between the state-controlled economy of the 50s, 60s, and, and the more liberal vision of that Deng Xiaoping introduced? Yeah. So if you look at the kind of model they had, you know, certainly starting from the Deng era in the 1980s through the 90s into the early 2000s, it was a model that had kind of two solitudes, if you will. There is the kind of the big, stodgy, but very powerful state sector on the one hand, controlling the commanding heights like finance and energy. And then on the other hand, you had this sort of Wild West private sector uh, raging outside of that. And under Xi, it's an attempt to really meld these these things together. Let's explore that a bit more. I mean, how would you define Xinomics then? How does Xi Jinping intend to reinvent state capitalism? Well, the the underpinning theme is is the theme of control. Really, I think you can break it down into three different elements. So number one, tighter control over China's growth cycle, over China's debt cycle as well. A recognition that the amount of debt that had been built up over the past decade had gotten to a size that it could basically break the system. Number two, an attempt to make the state, the administrative state, more efficient. You obviously wouldn't describe China as a rule of law society in a civic or a political sense, but in the business sector, there's been a big emphasis on trying to make 
the rule of law more important. So there's been a big increase in business-related legal cases, a big increase in bankruptcies, uh, a use of a credit blacklisting system to, to make courts more powerful. The third element is, is that there's really been a blurring of the boundaries between the state sector and the private sector, trying to bring market discipline to the state sector, but trying to bring state discipline to the market sector at the same time. It sounds all very well in theory, Simon, but is it going to work? Well, I mean, I should be clear that we're we're not endorsing this system and we're not necessarily saying it's going to work. We're trying to observe the reality of, of what's happening in China. There are a lot of contradictions that are built into it. There's a big tension, obviously, between strengthening the state on the one hand and trying to free up the market on the other hand. The crucial observation is that at this point in time, it does seem to be working, and that's having a big impact on the global balance of economic and political power. To understand the nature of China's new state capitalism, it's important to identify what's driving these changes. I think the circumstances have changed, even though China rebounded and actually grew very rapidly immediately after the global financial crisis. But the fact is that the global environment has changed. Wang Tao is chief China economist at UBS, an investment bank, and is based in Hong Kong. China has had to confront the aftermath of that huge stimulus, uh, so rising bad debt, a lot of excess capacity, and at the same time, global demand is no longer as big or as important for China's growth. There's deglobalization pressures, there's a trade war going on, face of the pressure of decoupling. On one hand, I think uh, China wants to uh, continue to open up and make itself as attractive as possible to foreign investors, but at the same time, it's worried about supply chain risk, about uh, disruptions, about restrictions of exports to China. So it has to also focus on self-reliance, especially on technology. They focused quite a bit on dealing with the financial risk, de-risking environmental issues, and also poverty alleviation. You can't have 70 million people under absolute poverty uh, and claim that you have achieved uh, full prosperity. Yes, I wanted to ask you about the financial de-risking that you mentioned. Just a few years ago, analysts were very worried about China's levels of debt. But did the debt problem get solved? And with the pandemic, is a new one now building up? Indeed, I think many people were very worried about China's debt problem a few years ago, and myself included. It was getting to a high level, and shadow credit was growing also very fast. Since 2016, the authorities took it very seriously, and they slowed down credit growth, rolled out new regulations to regulate the, the shadow banking side. Also, very importantly, they started to tackle excess capacity issues, especially in the coal and steel sectors. I wouldn't say they solved the problem. I think they contained the problem. But then the trade war happened and COVID happened. So debt risk is rising again. So I think the risk is still there, but definitely smaller compared to 2015-16. Turning to the the microeconomy, if you like, how do you describe the environment for new businesses in China? I think the authorities very much encourage startups and and innovation. That's one of the key policy drivers for Premier Li Keqiang has been talking about. And in some areas in technology, internet-related areas, the Chinese government takes a pretty relaxed attitude towards regulation. So that's helpful. But of course, in areas when when startups quickly become big and there could be regulatory issues, Another um, area the government has been encouraging startups, of course, is trying to reduce um, the administrative 
hurdles by uh, making it easier to register companies and so on, reducing the number of days that one needs to register for companies. And that's a, also a big drive for Premier Li Keqiang in the past few years. I mean, on the one hand, we see the private sector being encouraged in, in some of the ways you've just described, but also there's a, a strengthening of party management with stronger party committees being set up in private businesses and the state-owned enterprises themselves are, are being bolstered, strengthened. How do you interpret all that? Well, yeah, so there's definitely some tension there with the authorities encouraging the development of the private sector. At the same time, there's also an emphasis of party control. And so I've asked the various people to clarify this. My understanding is that the party control is really about more sort of political direction, not about day-to-day management. So at, at the management level, innovation and seeking to make profit and so on, I think the authorities very much still encourage even the state-owned enterprises to follow the market signal. On state-owned enterprise reform, for example, China has been advocating mixed ownership reform and also setting up board at state-owned enterprises. That may not seem very much if the ownership is not changed, but I think in practice, that may also still bring some improvement because it would turn from whatever one person says goes to at least you need maybe 10, 12 people agreeing. It's really about how do we improve efficiency? How do we reduce waste more aligning to market signals and, and so on, rather than the traditional major ownership change that people are familiar with. Dr. Wang Tao, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. Simon, we heard there Dr. Wang explaining some of these high-level shifts in economic planning. How much do these translate to the ground level? How are they felt in companies themselves? Well, it's complicated. You, you get very mixed tales from the private sector. You know, on the positive side, there has been a big increase in startups. And you have a, a young generation that, you know, they used to strive to work for the state sector. Now they want to start their own businesses, uh, work for big tech companies, you know, like anywhere in the world. So lots of businesses say say the work environment is better. They're no longer forced to kind of do boozy banquets with government officials to get approvals, which used to be, you know, the bane of the private sector existence. At the same time, you have a lot of people in the private sector who are basically scared. They're very wary of attracting too much attention. To give you a bit more of a sense of the business environment, I spoke with Zhu Ning. He's the deputy dean of the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance. I asked him about the legal system, whether it's more predictable for companies and whether that matters. Well, I think it definitely matters. It probably does not matter as much as it does in the Western economies, but I think it really matters here. Over the past decades, the transparency of the business environment has improved. That being said, I think there are still two things which people have to be very careful about. One is the rule of law, as you said, means very different things in China than it does in other countries. Two is I think there's still a very big distinction between the rule of law towards domestic companies and the rule of law towards foreign companies. So I think there's still a lot of improvement to be made regarding the national treatment by foreign companies. So the idea that domestic companies have seen improvements is, is something that chimes with what I've heard from entrepreneurs. Uh, one really interesting business executive I spoke with was Michael Mao. He's the director of Globon. You've probably never heard of it, but it's one of the world's biggest makers uh, of bedding and pillows. Mm-hmm. 
He's been at the company for over 20 years, and he told me that he thinks reforms have, have dramatically improved the business environment in that time. When he first started, he estimates that over a third of his day was taken up with dealing with government officials. You know, today it was the tax office, tomorrow the bank, the day after that it was the Environmental Protection Bureau. Today, he says he hardly deals with bureaucracy at all. Things are much more efficient, much more transparent. He also implies that corruption has fallen. A business permit used to take a month to get. Now he can get it in a day. But the Communist Party is also increasing its control in the private sector, isn't it? I mean, how is that being felt? Objectively, there there is a lot more control. Private companies beyond a certain size, they've always had to have party committees. That requirement is now being enforced. Uh, you can even see if you look at corporate filings to the stock market, a big increase in the numbers of companies that cite Xi Jinping thought um, as, as a guiding principle. Uh, and there's talk that the party committees you know, might get even more powerful deciding things like personnel appointments. So I think it's very easy from the outside to conclude that the party is, is really running the show in the business space. When you speak to companies, though, you find that in general, they talk about the party as being a part of the landscape, but but something that's kind of very much in the background, almost like a regulator. When I asked Michael Mao of Globe on that question, he explained that his company does have its own party branch. Uh, they meet about once a quarter. They get together. They study party policies and guidelines. He, he echoed Wang Tao's analysis, basically, as saying that, you know, their success depends on how they operate, how they manage the market. It's helpful for them, he said, to have a party committee that allows them to learn more about the state of the economy, about the direction of policy. So, you know, at least it doesn't hurt, um, is the way he put it. Uh, after all, he said, we're a Chinese company. We have to act according to China's policies. And, and what about the other side of the coin, the, the reform and, and strengthening of, of state-owned enterprises and, and their role in the economy? I think this is the part of Xenomics that you could say so far is, is the weakest. There's, there's little sign that the reforms to make SOEs, um, state-owned enterprises, more efficient have gained traction. Uh, it, it's very hard to shift incentives in the state-controlled sector. Um, and Xi Jinping himself has made clear that he doesn't want to overhaul the state sector. He wants to get more out of it, but he also wants to use the state sector to get more out of the private sector. Uh, in fact, when I spoke to Juning from the Shanghai Advanced Institute of Finance, this is the, the first thing that he flagged when I asked him about what the biggest change in policy over the past decade had been. The SOEs have been becoming very aggressive in entering some of the more uh, liberal, the more innovation industry, which was dominated by private enterprises. So I think through that channel, the SOEs have become more competitive or more uh, rewarding financially uh, over the past few years. That being said, I think from a macroeconomy perspective, whether this movement could stifle or uh, crowd out some of the otherwise innovative activities by private enterprises, I think that remains to be seen. 
Coming up, is Xi Jinping's new economic agenda paying off where it counts most? At the cutting edge of technological innovation, on the front line of a trade war. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. In 2015, Li Keqiang, the Prime Minister, laid out an ambitious vision for a path to Chinese technological dominance on almost every front. Made in China 2025 listed 10 sectors, from aerospace to semiconductors, where Chinese manufacturing would be supercharged. It was anything but focused. But the ambition of the plan, combined with fear of China's industrial policy prowess and what was seen as habitual spying, prompted America to react. And this has helped Mr. Xi further shape the country's industrial priorities. Today, it's not just the state sector that is rallying to this cause of trying to really improve China's technology capabilities. More uh, private firms, more high-tech firms are also now very much uh, involved and interested in building up China's technology sector more broadly. Dan Wong is a technology analyst with Gavkal Dragonomics, a research firm based in Beijing. Take the example of Huawei. Now, there's quite a lot of debate about whether Huawei is, in fact, a private firm. We don't need to get into that here, but I think we can acknowledge that it is a leading Chinese firm in technologies. So if you take a look at your smartphone, uh, it has about 1,500 different discrete hardware components inside. If you take away any single one of these components, you don't really have a smartphone anymore. It's much more of a paperweight. And so there are a set of these stranglehold technologies or that the Chinese government has identified that it is very fussed about, that these firms themselves are very concerned about. So a software company like Alibaba or Tencent uses substantial amounts of U.S. software in order to make their own apps. And across the board, many Chinese firms are asking, can we depend on American supply? And if not, how do we cultivate non-American sources that include sources from Europe, that include sources from Japan, but best of all, it includes sources from China, which are the most politically reliable, which cannot get pulled out from under us totally unexpectedly. To follow on from that, though, are there areas in which China is is breaking the stranglehold? I mean, I'm thinking of semiconductors in particular. Yangtze Memory Technologies, YMTC, has said that it can make memory chips as technologically advanced as anything Samsung can offer. So is China getting there in some areas? Well, I think the 
country is certainly getting there in many broad areas, but it is getting there over a very long time span. So uh, about 10 years ago, uh, not to say anything like 20 years ago, everybody thought that China was only a place good for certain types of low-end manufacturing, not anything more sophisticated. More recently, China, I think, is a very credible producer of certain high-end technologies that include, let's say, high-speed rail. It is now pretty good at producing things like wind turbines and solar panels. It is very good at making uh, smartphones that uh, people in developing countries really want to buy. So Chinese brands make up around half of the smartphones sold in the world. Two years ago, an academic found that the share of Chinese value added in an iPhone X has increased from 4% in 2008, the first iPhone, to 25%. And that's a much higher value phone. So that has represented a fairly substantial increase in Chinese domestic capabilities to make fairly high end components. And so I think that's the story. China can do it, but it is not something that China can figure out in something like two months or even two years. And that leads to, to a question, Dan, which is about the relationship between the party and the state and, and the private sector that we're seeing on the one hand, a lot of talk of strengthening uh, state owned enterprises. And yet, also talk about how uh, a vibrant private sector is critically important for the economy. This, this seems a, a tension, a contradiction there. Well, you know, I live in Beijing and, uh, you know, uh, therefore I see quite a lot of self-professed Marxists. To Marxists, nothing is more wonderful than a contradiction. There is at least a division of labor between the state sector and uh, the private sector uh, in which the state sees the state sector as agents of policy. So for example, China Mobile is a state company, but looks pretty competent in delivering 4G and 5G services around the country. It has a mandate to invest a lot more in these things so that other firms can make use of these technologies. That's sort of the uh, enigma and the contradictory nature of the system. I suppose one way that the West likes to comfort itself is with the idea that you can't mandate innovation. But what you're suggesting seems to be that actually the system is working in producing competitive, innovative products. That's a long debated question. And, um, you know, historically, I would point to something like Prussia, which was highly autocratic in the late 19th century, but also invented the model of our modern research university and had these stunning successes in the chemicals industry. And so I think empirically, we can say that China has generated a few very promising consumer internet companies, namely Alibaba, uh, Tencent, and ByteDance. It has created a leading consumer brand in smartphones, namely Huawei, that is also leading on 5G technologies. All of that is happening in an autocratic system. So actually, there is quite a lot going on here that is pretty interesting. Dan Wong, thank you very much. Thank you so much, Simon. Simon, what do you make of Dan Wong's likening China today to Prussia in the late 19th century? Do you agree that the current model has the capacity to foster the level of innovation it needs over the long term? I, I think the Prussian comparison is fascinating because the knee-jerk reaction is to liken China to the Soviet Union, and we all know how that ended. And that leads to a real underestimate of, of, of where China is going China long ago solved you know, basic problems of scarcity. Consumer choice that you see is absolutely bewildering. The state is much more 
efficient and it's, it's much more intertwined with with the western economy than the soviet union ever was you know to take dan's points on board you know you look at the private sector and it really has actually continued to boom under xi jinping um the 10 biggest non-state companies in china under xi's rule have added roughly 2 trillion dollars to their market capitalization it is a very complex picture and certainly there is a lot of innovation that's taking place I can see that Prussia might be a more attractive model than the Soviet Union, but one should remember, I suppose, that its rise did end in the First World War, which might be one answer to the next question I wanted to ask you, which is, you know, why does it matter so much that the West does understand how the Chinese economy is being remade? The geopolitical consequences, as you, as you just laid out, are, are obviously reason number one. I mean, outsiders, they tend to swing between two extremes. You know, on the one hand, you have a, a view with a, a very long heritage, if you will. That is all a house of cards. It's going to collapse. I think many in the Trump administration are convinced that China's steroidal state capitalism is, is weaker than it looks. The other extreme that some go to is, you know, they extrapolate out from China's current growth rates and they think it's all conquering, it's bent on world domination. But when you look at the xenomics model, you know, the basic tension of the state sector remains unresolved. National duty, you know, doing things for the state, for the glory of China matters more than ever. And the question about, you know, when China gets close to the technological frontier, when tech innovation is no longer so much about looking at the templates of other countries, but really kind of trying to break out of the box and do things that are profoundly original, whether this this state-guided model is going to be up to the task of that. So do you have a prescription, Simon, for how America and its allies should engage with and respond to this new form of state capitalism? I think the West needs to focus on trying to set up kind of new stable rules for, for commercial engagement with China, tougher reviews of Chinese investments, making sure that state-backed companies don't just come in and snap up your, your crown jewels. America clearly has already gone that direction. Europe is moving there, but is moving quite slowly in that direction. Tougher new rules for, for trade as well. The Trans-Pacific Partnership, the TPP is still alive, has been kept alive in, in large part by Japan, actually. It would be great if Biden is elected to see America trying to get back into TPP, trying to set up new rules for global trade that deal with the kind of system that China has developed. The, the second point, I think, is that the hasty rush to decoupling is damaging. It doesn't work. I think it is sensible for other economies to try to diversify away from China, uh, but it's got to be done incrementally over time, basically trying to, to establish a little bit more space between the Western system and the Chinese system. You know, these are systems that are grounded in fundamentally different value judgments about economics, about politics, about matters, big and small. I think it's a, a question of trying to find a way to coexist with the very strong economy that, that exists today and that will exist into the future. Simon Rabinovich, thank you. Thank you, Simon. My pleasure. And thank you for listening to Money Talks. To read Simon's briefing about how Xi Jinping is remaking the Chinese economy, go to economist.com. And I'd also urge you to read this week's cover package, which unveils new information about the persecution of China's 12 million strong Uyghur minority. These abuses highlight a global crisis in human rights. It really is extraordinary reporting and worthy of your attention. If you're not yet a subscriber, there's a special offer for listeners at economist.com slash podcast offer. And the link is in the episode notes on your podcast app. 
Thank you for listening to Money Talks. I'm Simon Long, and in London, this is The Economist. <laughs>